0: Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Twitter podcast is Sanjit Singh. Sanjit is a serial entrepreneur who has launched several successful tech startups and had two successful exits. He is currently the CEO of Bolt.io, a company that helps startups build a repeatable sales engine so that they can achieve predictable growth. Sanji, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Darren. So take me back. I know you've had a, a long history of entrepreneurship. As What was your first start in entrepreneurship, and, and why did you jump into that?
1: You know, I think my first start has to probably go all the way back to childhood. I was the guy walking down the streets, knocking on doors, seeing if I could mow people's lawns. And then, of course, you know, when I graduated college, the word startup was not a household word yet. And so it took a lot of capital to start a company which I didn't have. So I worked for the corporate world for 15 years before starting my first business in middle of 2007.
0: What were some of those things you did? So hustling, mowing lawns, you actually started a little business for yourself?
1: More or less. I mean, it was, it was more uh, an odd collection of things. Basically, whatever people would pay me to do, whether it was gardening or painting or you know babysitting or
0: uh, mowing lawns. Yeah, I actually thought about that yesterday. I think I probably got the last run of Girl Scout cookies outside of the grocery store yesterday. And I always want to say, you know, girls, this will be the easiest sales job you ever have.
1: <laughs> it's still good to see them doing it that age and hustling and, you know, but you're right. They kind of sell themselves.
0: So you worked for the corporate world for, I think, about 13 to 15 years. What did you actually do and what did you learn from that time before you were ready to go out and jump into the world of entrepreneurship?
1: Most of that time was uh, in sales and sales management. And sales leadership. And, you know, I was always looking to start my own business. I just, you know, I didn't really see an opportunity to do so until uh, 2007.
0: Yeah, so it's an interesting path is I actually had a guest on the, the podcast recently who also made that, that path from sales to chief revenue officer to, to CEO. Talk to me a little bit about how you made that gap, how that experience in sales and as a sales manager equipped you to jump into the startup world. Because I would think most people, especially now with tech, as the lens that we think about startups, as we think about engineers that come out of the, the great schools in computer science, like how did you actually make that leap and leverage that background in sales?
1: the the leap is like any other leap you just learn the things that you don't know but the reason i think it's maybe more natural or easier for people like me than maybe let's say an an engineer that's you know just as skilled is my inherent focus after you know being in sales for years is, is a market focus and as we know you know the best products are created understanding the market having the market in mind when you make it or adjusting to the market whereas in other disciplines whether it's operations or engineering you don't necessarily get that exact kind of training so that's what makes it i guess that's the built-in advantage that it has in that you tend to think that way and you tend to think of everything from the customer's point of view which can be a weakness as well you know customers don't know what they want you you, you can't necessarily always ask them what they want but having a lack of fear about talking to the market have you know keeping the customer at the top of the scale of importance is really an important thing that I, I did gain from that.
0: So tell me about your first startup. So what was that like and, and how did you make that jump from that corporate world into that first startup?
1: Well, I guess my first business wasn't really a tech startup the way we think of it. It didn't involve technology. It, it wasn't in the, the tech industry. It wasn't SaaS, anything like that. My first business was a, re, a shipping reselling franchise, which I bought into, which was almost exactly what I was doing for 10 years prior with Airborne Express. Fortunately, I have 500 company that was acquired by DHL. So that, that didn't bear a lot of resemblance to what we do in startups today, but that was where I got my start.
0: And then I know you had a, your first foray into technology, I think was a company that was called Lead Crunch. What was that like? How'd you get involved in that space?
1: I had had, you know, a couple of good outcomes. So I, by that point, so I had invested in a couple of startups. One of them, I met one of the other board members who had a lot of experience in AI and I had myself learned a little bit about AI in my MBA program and back in 2006, before it was even called that, or before we, I'd even heard the words machine learning. And so because of my familiarity with that and my strong sense about the potential there and my, what would be my future business partner's experience in that, that's kind of where we started finding some commonality, that, which led to ideas, which then eventually led to a company.
0: And how did that expand and grow over time? I, I know it included raising money and a successful exit. Like, what were some of those big steps and and what were some of the, the things that you learned along the way?
1: So I guess the steps that took place are pivots, obviously. We did not start in the successful business model that we ended up in. We actually started by thinking that we could help researchers, medical researchers, find what they were looking for in PubMed using algorithm technology. and. Although we actually had some technical success in doing that, you know, when we started investigating the market, we just realized there was, it was not a good market that had the attributes that we were looking for. So we pivoted a few more times and then ended up in a business that I had sort of... It was one of the ideas that had always been rolling around my head, which was built around the idea of, can we use AI and you know, predictive algorithms to help sales and marketing professionals get to their next best customer faster?
0: And what were some of the applications of that? What were some of the customer segments that you went after and how'd you go about building that product for that marketplace?
1: Well, we actually started with a pure SaaS model, which didn't work well because the SaaS application of that doesn't work that well until you have tons and tons of data to train on. And so we ended up stacking a service on top of it, which helped us to adjust some of the issues that were coming out of the AI algorithms. And, all, and then provide something of great value to our clients. But of course, over time, you know, our technology, our underlying core SaaS technology got better and better. And then even after, even subsequent to my leaving and my partner leaving the company, they've rebranded the company as Rev and now they're moving to uh, pure SaaS model, which was the, the original intent in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I heard you talk about something interesting that, that I wanted to bring up. And when you mentioned the word pivot, you talk about, I think, the paradox of pivot and perseverance. You mind just talking about a little bit about that, please?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite paradoxes to talk about in entrepreneurship, and there are many. But, you know, it's the idea of, you know, how do you know when I should just keep persisting? And how do you know when I'm really at a point where I need to pivot? And the outside world doesn't really help you very much because we get, so much conflicting advice from mentors, VCs, angel investors. And everyone's telling you something different. It's a great business. It's a terrible business. You know, I mean, it's it's a really really terrible business. But somebody asked me out there. They said, "Is this a good business or is it not a good business?" I said, "I think you should be very careful ever asking that question because a lot of the greatest businesses that have ever been built just don't look very good, and you don't know it." And I could say it's a great business or a terrible business, and and I could be totally wrong. Like, why should you trust what I say? I mean, and I think that's where the answer lies, which is where's your conviction? You know, because if you believe in the zero to one philosophy of Peter Thiel, which is what's a secret that you have that you believe that no one else believes? You know, and I do think you have to have that. And it's not just something you believe, it's something you have to be very convicted in. And then, of course, that leads to how do I know which VC to listen to or which advice to listen to? And it's like, if someone tells you something and it bugs you, it keeps you up for nights and nights and nights on end. Maybe something you need to, to listen to. Otherwise, you just got to stick with your convictions and keep going. In other words, don't pivot until you start to actually believe that you need to pivot until your conviction really starts to wane. It's so hard what we go through that you just you're never going to make it unless you have total conviction.
0: Yeah, it's interesting is. As- How do you take all that outside competing advice? I love what you're saying is you start with it within. I mean, I think it's true of my own life and experience, whether it's in personal and business, you just get overwhelmed with just competing perspectives, whether it's in you know dating or about business or careers or how to handle yourself. So interesting point for sure. Can you take me through one of those pivots? I think a lot of people hear about pivots, but they don't really go behind that, and some of like the psychology and how you actually work through that pivot, whether it was from the the ResMed or the PubMed, what I'm probably butchering the name of that, but how you shifted from that to becoming more of a marketing service, like what was that pivot like?
1: Well, there was a couple other pivots in between. But to simplify, I'll just say that the problem we were solving was real, and I think this is where you know a lot of entrepreneurs run into challenges, and I, we certainly did, which was you know the the first thing I think of is who's going to pay for this? and How much would they pay and you know we were so initially we were so enamored with our idea and the fact that we were having some technical validation of it but you know i I decided hey let's let's just go out to we're, we're in san diego let's go to uc san diego and let's just start talking to researchers and what we found very quickly is that even as much as it would have improved the efficiency of the whole system they have graduate students to do their basically their their work for free i mean why would they pay for this so that's just a simple example of how technical capability and market you know, viability are just two different things. And you really have to think about both if before you really start putting a lot of money and time and effort into something. And on the other hand, I don't think I've gone to this extent before, but I've certainly seen other entrepreneurs that they build something in their garage for three years because they, they're convinced it's super awesome. They've never talked to their market. And it just pains me to start talking to them at that point. When they come, you know, when they're maybe let's like, say they're asking me for mentorship, it just pains me because I have to say, there may not be any market here. I mean, we gotta now we gotta go find it. And if we can't find it, we gotta help you figure out how to pivot. And and hopefully all this work isn't in vain because they sure have put a lot of work into it by that point.
0: So one of the things I wanted to to talk to you about is you mentioned this really early on in terms of one of the things that gave you perhaps a leg up as you coming from a perspective of sales and thinking about things through markets and, and obviously we've evolved from a a build it and they will come mindset of let's build the best product and assume that's going to be the one that wins is what have you done? Cause I know you've, you've worked with and worked, you started your own number of startups is how have you gone about building that engine for predictable, repeatable revenue at some of these companies?
1: Yeah. So I've done that. Like you mentioned, I've done it for big companies. I've done it for my own companies and I've done it, you know, helped, uh, I've been hired to do it for startups. And the way I think about it is where are they in the journey? Like, do they have revenue? Do they have enough customers where we can start to see patterns? Who's buying their product? Is it one segment or many? Are they small? Are they large? What industries are they in? If we can start understanding those patterns, then we know how to get more customers. You know, we start to know more and more about how to get customers in a repeatable, predictable way. And in fact, I was talking to, one of the marketing teams I work with this morning. And I said, yes, if once we can get some case studies and we find out, like we've identified in this case, there's two markets, there's SMB and there's mid-market in this particular context. And I said, if we can find out what are the three reasons this market buys from us, what are the three reasons this market buys, the three main ones, that makes our, our outreach so much simpler. It makes our, like it informs our thought leadership because now we're send, now we send out a signal Built around the, the reasons that people buy from us, and it makes everything more efficient because now we're speaking the language, and we're speaking right to the people who would buy us, and we're speaking to them on the points that they would buy us on. And so that that's a marketing standpoint. When they get into the, you know the sales funnel, then it's all about what do they need between now and the time they close win. How many influencers are there typically? Who usually comes to you know to the sales call slash demo? What are their main pain points? What are their considerations? What, what's their who's on their short list? We have competition, which I almost always do. How are they going to decide between those those factors, and how do we put our best foot forward and 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 really bring out our differentiation? In this case, the differentiation that's meaningful to them. Like yes, we can meet all the basic criteria like these other guys, but this is the part that's differentiating about us. And here's how it relates to the things that are most meaningful to you. Then of course you got to do the sales process. Who else is involved in the sale? What are they making the decision? So once you map out all the way from Cold lead to closed win to, you know, very happy customer who's giving us referrals or evangel- evangelism, whatever you want to call it. Then we start spinning that wheel. Then it's just a matter of putting more cash and more talent on top of a system, a core system that works well. Some call it a flywheel, but that's essentially the idea.
0: I mean, it obviously sounds pretty straightforward and simple when you say that, but for most people, obviously not in terms of having done all those steps, diligently asking the right questions, but how do you actually go and create that flywheel? I know that's a term a lot of people hear, um, obviously in the startup world and technology world, but how do you actually go and put some rigor behind that in terms of processes and and then also the people side? How do you get people to actually, to run that process systematically so you can actually achieve that predictable, repeatable revenue?
1: Well, I think, you know, getting, first of all, you know the core of the flywheel is actually what I talked about, which it may or may not be obvious to people, but what does a happy customer look like because this this informs the whole flywheel. It tells us who should we be talking to, who should we not? You know what's an, what we call ideal customer profile or i c p That's who we should be talking to, and then there's people who are for lack of a better term contraindicated right we people we, we know we don't want to talk to because we're're we're either a bad fit or're we're, we're not a fit at all, and so we want to make sure that we screen those people out early in the process, bring the right ones in, and if the entrepreneur or somebody on the early team has done a good job of sussing out the steps that are required to get them from here to closed win, then it's just a matter of teaching that system to someone else and then having that person master it, teach someone else, then they're the sales manager and so on right and that's true whether you have you know one account executive that's a full funnel account executive, or if you have an SDR and an account executive, it's really the same idea. It's what are the steps that happen and whether it's one person doing those steps or three people, like a marketer, an SDR, and, a, and an AE. You just want to make sure those elements are clear. They're in the right sequence. And we keep repeating this pattern. We make a library of successes. Like, do we record our sales calls? Do we then show those successful sales calls? Maybe even some unsuccessful ones to new salespeople so they they now start to see examples in the real world of what you just taught them. And obviously, when you say the word teach, the things that become important are keep it simple, write it down, keep measuring people on it, testing to make sure that they're doing the right activities that you know are going to get them results. And then, of course, you, you, you iterate and you tweak
0: over time to, uh, to optimize. Yeah, I was going to say actually, how do you institutionalize it? Obviously, you mentioned writing it down, documentation. Obviously, reinforcing with metrics. Tie that to the performance management system and outcomes. Is how do you actually go from a practical perspective in terms of institutionalizing it? So it's not just a bunch of activities and people teaching the next person, the next person, the next person. But actually, how do you how do you capture that? Because obviously, when you do that at scale, it's obviously a lot more challenging than than teaching that to one or two or three people.
1: Yeah, that's why you, you write it down in what we, you know, sometimes people call it a playbook. You know, you could have your marketing playbook, your SDR playbook, your e-playbook, or just your revenue playbook, whatever you want to call it. But it's it's a written document. And sometimes it's accompanied by, ideally, accompanied by videos, actually teaching and walking people through it that are in a library or a library of, and or a library of sales calls so that you have material that people can consume that continue to reinforce things you taught them. like. You say, hey, read this material, look at these videos, then we'll talk about it. And then you say, you watch me do 100 calls or let's say 10. Okay. You watch me do 10 calls, and then we'll talk about them. And then I'll watch you do 10 calls or, or what have you, whether it's phone calls or sales calls or whatever. And then you just keep doing that until you see that the skills have gotten the skills and they're hitting the right metrics. Like if they have sales calls and your, your expectation is that they're going to close one in five, sales calls become closed when, you know, if they're closing one in 25, then, okay, then just go back and you say, where did we go wrong? You know, where's something a little bit out of whack. And it's like, oh, I noticed that when you end the call, you don't ask for another meeting, you know, to close the business. So let's make sure we're doing that. And here's how we do it. And look, let me actually have you watch me do a call so that you see me actually do it instead of me just, you know, have you read it and try to do it live. Let's, watch me do this two or three times so you see you get comfortable with it and then, then i'll watch you do it so that could be the bottleneck or the you know you and i were talking the other day about i started to look at sales even though i came up through sales i began to look at it more like operations after reading the book the goal and taking operations class in business school where i started to see everything is where's the bottleneck in the sales process why is this rep doing so much better than this rep is it just activity is it that they're missing something is it that they're not comfortable talking about pricing there's something in there that's bottlenecking or, you know, reducing their close, their, their success ratio. What is it? I almost look at everything like that. Now, why, why is the company not su- succeeding in this area or why are we stuck here? You know, and you just get, you keep going deeper and deeper until you get, try to, you know,
0: find the heart of the issue. You're bringing me back to my process reengineering days at Accenture. So getting some good flashbacks here. If you think about that, what are some of the mistakes that companies make, both startups and and established companies alike, in terms of that sales process, that marketing process, all the things that that you just walk through, all those different steps, Work. what are some common mistakes you see?
1: Well, I think everything related to not thinking about it like what it is, which is an assembly line. This should be like an assembly line, right? And An assembly line implies a few things. One is, if something's screwed up and you're getting like a bunch of cakes that don't have the frosting on it, all of a sudden, you know, something's not working, right? Or if the line is totally stopped. Uh, But it implies a few other things. It implies, have we automated everything we can automate? Like if a customer touches our website, a whole series of things should happen and they should be automatic. Like basically every page is trying to guide them toward a giant button that's the call to action or CTA. That's what we want them to do is to click that button. If they don't click it, they're going to see it again later. They keep scrolling, they're going to see it again. And if they click on content, they're going to be able to read some content, and then they're going to see the button again. So are we putting that call to action in front of them? Every single time they take an action, we keep redirecting them to what we want them to do. That all should be automated. And then if they say, oh, gee, I'm not interested, and they gave us their email address, then they're going to be on our email drip campaign, and that's going to be automated. They're going to get a series of emails over X number of days. So all the way through the sales process, we even automated... like Once a sales call is done, you, go, you add a few fields to the CRM, or the marketing automation platform, and boom, a proposal automatically goes, it's already customized. And not only does it go to them, but the salesperson can see if the person opened the proposal, which pages they looked at, how much time they spent on each page, and all of that helps us, you know, build better proposals in the future based on that data.
0: So you mentioned automation, so that maybe is a perhaps a mistake that people make they don't automate all the different steps what else what other mistakes do companies make in terms of implementing this repeatable process so they can get that predictable revenue growth
1: yeah i think another one is just not understanding that things don't always translate that you think translate like i uh, let me let me give you an example you know i like many people got obsessed with the four hour work week when it came out and i was trying to crunch my 40 hour week into 4 hours like everyone else tried to you know, So I started hiring VAs, which I've had ever since. And it's, it, there's a many great lessons I learned from that book. But in hiring a VA, it, everyone should do this at least once if they haven't done it. You ask the VA to do something, and it's, it comes back upside down and backwards and wrong, right? And so what you learn to do is you say, that's when the lesson kicks in about everything related to sales and growing sales and teaching people a process. You learn that you can't just tell somebody. You got it, like you said earlier, you got to write it down so when I, when I outsource a task to a VA, especially if I'm going to have them do a thousand of a particular task, right? I say, this is step one. This is step two. I write it down. I create a video of me doing every single part of the process. And then I call them and I say, do you have any questions? No, don't do a thousand, even though I need you to do a thousand. Do five. Then let me look at the results. Then let me make some adjustments. Then do five more. Okay, you got it. Now you're, now you're off. To, now you can do the rest of the thousand. So That doesn't happen in sales uh, often, I see, is A, the entrepreneur hasn't taken the time to really blueprint what works and what doesn't work. What's the ideal customer look like? What are the steps they went through to get there? I get on the first few sales, you're not going to know that stuff. But If you've done 20, 30 sales by this point, you're going to have some data and you got to go look at that data and be disciplined enough to say, okay, this is what worked, this is what didn't. Now I know what to teach the salesperson when they're coming in. So you can't hire a salesperson unless you've built the playbook. You can't outsource that to an A.E. with you know or an S.D.R. who just got out of college. They're just not going to know the first thing to do. And so you have to figure it out, or get someone who knows how to figure it out, and then teach it to your first hire. Because I see a lot of people burn, they'll burn six months of cash on an S.D.R. and have almost no results to show for it. It's very very common. The other major mistake you see in sales, and there are many, but the other major major mistake you see is they'll go to IBM and hire VP of sales for a startup. And they'll be shocked why it's not a match because that person hasn't had to, you know, they may not have actually been on a sales call in five years. And so for them to roll their sleeves and get down and dirty in a startup where not everything is all perfectly lined out for them is often a stretch.
0: Yeah, it's interesting for sure in terms of making sure they have that right experience and mindset too. You know, I always, offered up in our interview for companies, especially earlier stage, the willingness to to roll up sleeves. And in my case, I use the example of power sanding the uh, softball benches when I was a intern at Lucasfilm back in college. So just about showing the willingness to actually do the hard work, do the nitty gritty work, but important for sure to find that match. But also some other great points as well, is I think a lot of times people don't think they have the data. You talked about if you've done 20, 30 deals, actually go back and look at the data. It sounds like it could be even anecdotal in, in cases, but it sounds like maybe one other lesson is, is not looking at the data early enough.
1: It's easy to say, well, we don't have statistically significant data. You can always say that, but you don't need it and you're never going to have it in early stage company. Otherwise, by definition, you would be early stage. So you've got to go with directional information and say, you know, Sure. We may, have, we may find more niches later, but we know this one's hitting and we, we only have so many resources, right? We know we're making success here. Let's dump all our money into this place we're having success because if we can make it to the B round and get a $100 million round, we'll have plenty of money to go and explore their niches, but we don't right now. So we have to use what little data we have. And the minute we start seeing something work, we got to start doubling down on that.
0: So I know a lot of people are thinking this is only really relevant in the startup world. And obviously a lot of people listening to the podcast are work for larger organizations, whether they're executives or just even employees. Like, how can this be applied, whether it's the sales process or the idea of standing up these processes to larger, more established organizations that may already have that playbook developed? They may already have a successful sales process. What can those companies learn from some of these practices of a startup context?
1: Well, you know, a startup mindset is always helpful no matter what size company you're in. You're always thinking how you can do a lot with the fewest amount of resources. And I guess it depends on what they're trying to achieve. I mean, if they're if they have a really successful sales playbook and they're trying to grow sales, you know, maybe they just need to figure out how to get more activity out of each person or get a better close win ratio from each person. And they, you know, you, they might start looking like if you build a success library of people who've been able to get, let's say more price than the rest of the sales team. Like, for example, you could build a library of those sales calls and say, what the hell are these people doing? And how do I extract that? Because they may not be the best teachers. I can look at the sales calls and try to take notes and figure out what they're doing. And then I can blueprint it and teach it to the rest of the sales org and say, it accomplishes so many things. One, you know, you bring a lot of great positive recognition and attention to the people that are doing well. And then you blueprint their success. And then you even if you can get you know, 10% of the rest of the sales org doing it, that could really move the needle depending on how large you are.
0: I love to shift gears a little bit. I know you do a lot of work with mentoring startups and founders through Connect and the Founder Institute. What are you seeing in terms of some of the trends, both from a company perspective, but also in terms of some of the things you're seeing in leaders and even some of the gaps that you're seeing as well? So some of the good and the bad, both from a... A company perspective, but also from a leadership perspective?
1: Good question. And you know this is true across all incubators. Well, the first industry trend, I think that's important to note is right now, depending on who's listening and where you're at in your journey, if you're looking to raise money, I've never seen a better time in my career. Like hands down, I've never seen a better time to raise money than right now. There's a lot of cash. Cash is chasing startups. And as one of my friends at Bessemer said, who's a EIR there, he said, don't be afraid to talk to the the really big names that you think you don't have a chance with because it's very competitive they're go they're they're not only investing in companies they wouldn't consider they're investing earlier stage they're investing pre revenue they're investing and these are venture capital firms which typically historically only invested at a round or institutional round they're investing seed pre seed pre revenue a really great idea in a deck in some cases, not many but some so I guess that's the first thing I'm seeing right now at at this point in history. But I guess, like, the longer we go, the more I see that people lack basic sales skills, basic market understanding. And I find it more and more puzzling that the basic super, like what I'd consider, you know, the very basic rudimentary education that every entrepreneur should have, people don't have even when they're in incubators. So I just, I don't know why the information's not getting in. I don't know why universities aren't starting to teach you know, the stuff we've been talking about for 10 years now, I get why they're not, why universities aren't up to the minute, but I don't understand why there's not more education going on earlier with the very basic things that people need to understand in, in uh, entrepreneurship.
0: What else, what else from a leadership perspective, obviously that's something I think about all the time. Like, what are you seeing in some of these early stage founders, both some of the the skills and positive attributes, but also some of the things that you need to be working on?
1: Oh, there's a lot of positives. I mean, Every generation seems to, you know, be more tech savvy, more creative, more amazing in terms of what kind of businesses they're creating. And the downside I see is, you know, they'll build a pitch deck and it won't have the 10 critical slides that need to be in a pitch deck. Like I, I, somehow, no one's taught them this. And I always refer everyone back to this Docsend article that, you know, analyzed 2.5 million slides, saw which. Startups got funded and which didn't, and they made some really robust conclusions that agree with all my experience and all of Sequoia's experience, because they quote Sequoia came to a lot of the same conclusions. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that should be, you know, startup 101. Also basic things like being able to create a, you know, a really basic set of financial projections, or, you know, understand how to get a TAM SAM-SOM, like right? total available market and so on. And go to market is is enormous weakness for most. And I think that's because, and it's also the most important, but that's because I think structurally, this is just how startups are. You know, they tend to be based on a technological solution, which tends to be built by one or two engineers who never really necessarily learned how to attack a new market. And not only that, I mean, even even if they knew how current companies were doing it, often in a startup, you have to approach the market in a little bit different way. And you may even have a story where there is no playbook. Often that's the case. So you've got to know a lot about marketing and sales and, and go-to- market and business development to have a, you know a really, really good story there. And that's where I think a lot of decks fall down is their go-to-market slide is like, well, there's 100 billion dollars in this market, and we just need to somehow figure out how to get two percent of it, and we're going to be huge. They're usually not that bad, but when you start poking into their story about how they're going to go get the business, or you're going to hire salespeople and you start saying, you start asking questions about that, you realize they don't really know much about that they just sort of heard it somewhere and they they stuck it in the slide that's where most of your story needs to be like we went out and talked to or you know we went out and talked to OEMs and we went out and talked to customers and we talked to these people and you know we this is how much they're currently paying for this, this is how much they're currently paying for that our product eliminates seven steps of a 12 step process you know it saves the average company x dollars per year. that's a much better answer right than than often what you see
0: So I'd love to hear more about what you're doing with Bolt.io in terms of I know the work you're doing in terms of bringing some of the things we talked about within the sales organization to some of those early stage companies. Can you talk to me a little bit about the work that you guys are doing?
1: Yeah, I think Bolt is really targeted at the typical startup, which is you know let's say a few technical people built an awesome product and they don't really know how to go about building a repeatable sales model. So that's where Bolt comes in. and We help them figure it out, and we help them figure out usually in less than six months. So we're we're there to get it done and get out. We're not there to stay. And sometimes I might do a call with a customer and they say, I'll say, what's your average selling price? They'll say $500. And I'll say, you can't afford a Salesforce. You don't have enough money in a sale to justify having salespeople on the phone doing demos. It's usually like, and I don't know what the numbers say, but it used to be like $3,000 a year and more to even have a Salesforce. I'm like, you got you to solve this another way. You know, Channel partnerships, marketing, you know, PR, whatever. There's got to be other ways, but you, there's... It can't sustain a sales org. Sales Salespeople are expensive. And as much as I have built my career in sales and love salespeople and, and love selling, it is kind of the last resort because it's the most expensive. I mean, you, why hire a single salesperson if A, you can't sustain it or B, if you can get as many customers as you need to through marketing or channel partnerships, then you should do that because it's it's a much more efficient way. You know, the ultimate, ultimate the investor wants to hear other than, you know, fast growth is... What's your LTV to CAC ratio? Lifetime value over customer acquisition costs. So these things I'm talking about go right to the heart of getting that ratio higher. And if it's not three or higher, usually investors are you know have concerns.
0: Yeah, one of the, the things that struck me when I came across your website, an old school reference is uh, the Doc Holiday, I'm Your Huckleberry from I think it was Tombstone was the movie. So can you talk to me a little about that. I, I love the use of humor by the way in terms of your positioning and value proposition. So talk to me about You guys being the Doc Holiday, that I'm your Huckleberry for startups.
1: Well, you know, Doc Holiday knew how to use a gun and we're not consultants. You know, we get in there and we sell and we figure out blueprint and hire. We actually get in there and do it. So I think it would, you know, there are really smart consultants that are a lot smarter than me. This is not what we do. We get in there and we, you know, we're your Huckleberry.
0: I love that. So what's the the future look for for you and for IO? What are you guys looking at?
1: Well, um, you know, Bolt is something I I, I love doing. And, I, I, you know, I and everyone, you know, I, often what ends up happening is we'll do work for companies, work for companies, and then some, you know, some amazing startup will come along and I really want to join the startup team. And that's what I end up doing.
0: So where can people go to find out more about you, connect with you on social media and also what, what you guys are up to at Bolt.io?
1: So... On LinkedIn, I'm Sanjeet Singh 3, S-A-N-J-I-T, S-A-N-G-H 3 on LinkedIn. And then, uh, or Bolt.io, you can contact me through either and uh, welcome any conversation about anything interesting.
0: Fantastic. Hey, Sanjeet, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Jaren. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you're walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.